Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Charlotte Bond. And we're very, very honoured to have Jean Cavalos with us tonight of the Odyssey Writing Workshop. And Jean is very cool, not only a writer and a teacher, but also ex-NASA. So that's that's pretty spectacular. Um, Jean, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's great talking to you. So I started out in astrophysics. I really wanted to be an astronaut like Charlton Heston in The Planet of the Apes, if anyone knows <laughs> that old reference. Um, but once I got to NASA, um, they were doing the space shuttle thing, and I thought, I'm really not boldly going where no one has gone before. And I realized that what I really loved was science fiction, that those ideas and exploring and having great stories and great characters. Um, so I went off and got my master's in creative writing and then got into publishing and became a senior editor at Bantam Doubleday Dell in New York, uh, where I um, edited fantasy, science fiction, and horror uh, and had a great time. I just love working with writers and helping them to fully realize their visions Um, And that was uh, a great opportunity. Um, But what I found there was that the actual editing of the manuscripts is only a small part of the job of a senior editor. And there's a lot of other uh, unpleasant tasks involved in that job, like, you know, convincing everybody at the publishing house that the books that you are publishing are worthy of their attention and their passion. So anyway, what I really wanted to do was work more closely with authors, as well as work on my own writing. So uh, after eight years, I left New York and moved to New Hampshire. Um, And uh, I have eight books out now of my own. And I also started Odyssey shortly after moving up here so that I would have this way to work more in depth with writers than I could at the publishing house. Uh, And it's been such a wonderful experience. Uh, Odyssey is now, we're about to have our 23rd workshop this summer, um, which makes me feel very old, but also very happy because lots of writers have have come and I've had a great opportunity to work with them and see them build their careers and just become great authors. Um, So that's basically me. uh, And I also do some teaching. Um, at a college here in New Hampshire. So you have a pretty full plate, it sounds like. Yeah. (laughs) Is it just you who does the teaching at Odyssey, or do you have other people that you get in as well? Uh, So uh, Odyssey runs for six weeks, uh, every June and July. Uh, I'm the primary instructor, so I'm there for the whole time. By the time students arrive, I've already read two of their pieces and critiqued those. Um, So I have a sense of their strengths and weaknesses and can work individually with everyone. We have only 15 students, so there's a lot of um, time for one-on-one meetings and um, strategy sessions. Uh, And then every week of the six weeks, we have a guest lecturer come in who stays for about 24 hours, um, working with the writers, lecturing, sharing their own perspectives and techniques on different writing issues. So they get a variety of uh, of feedback from experts in the field, which is really important, uh, as well as getting continuity from one person who can tell them, you know, whether they're improving or not and which areas are still causing trouble and where they should 
um, maybe focus their energy. Uh, so I think that combination is really good. We also, in recent years, have added a couple of Skype guests. Um, so just as we are Skyping now, uh, we have a couple of guests Skype in, people that otherwise wouldn't be able to come to the workshop because of their schedule or their distant location uh, or whatever. And so that gives a great opportunity for more input by, uh, by great people in the field. That sounds wonderful. Let's kind of talk about you know, creative writing as a whole. So I am a graduate of a creative writing diploma. I think Charlotte has also been on creative writing courses. I have, but I don't have any diplomas. I just have a lot of <laughs> anecdotes to go with mine. <laughs> um, our other co-host, who's not with us tonight, but Lucy, she has a, a master's in creative writing. You know, so we we are all very much, um, I think, advocates for creative writing. Um, but you know, there is that kind of contentious question that constantly comes up. You know, can you really teach creative writing? You know, are these creative writing courses worth it? So, what do you think of when you're talking about, you know? teaching creative writing or teaching these people? What what are we talking about, really? I think maybe the one thing that I can't teach would be the, the instinct or the drive to tell a story. I think somebody needs to have that before they can start telling good stories. Um, but I've seen over and over again in my experience at Odyssey and my experience back at the publishing house, how much writers can improve when they are given some techniques to use, some tools for their toolbox, some feedback on uh, how their vision is not getting down on the page. A lot of writers, I think, like to promote this mystique that you either have it or you don't have it. <laughs> which is so ridiculous. Like, oh yes, brain surgery. Either I'm born with that skill or I can never get it, right? What other field would that make sense in? Yeah. But with writing, somehow a lot of writers kind of have it in their heads, you know, either I have it or I don't have it. So if you critique my story and you find a lot of stuff wrong with it, that means that I'm not meant to be a writer, that I don't have it. And oh my God, how catastrophic is that? But it's not at all because it's a skill that you learn. It's a skill that you learn. You don't, you're not born knowing how to plot. You're not born knowing how to create an internal conflict that leads to a difficult decision and a character change. I mean, these are all things that you can learn. You don't, you're not born knowing how to write a strong hook to start a story or to write a surprising but inevitable climax. Um, those are all things that can be taught. And lots of times, well, pretty much every time when I take on a writer to teach, uh, I see promise. I see they have some skills and they have some instincts. And in some ways they're inspired by things that they've read before and sort of trying to recreate those feelings and experiences and that they need to, uh, to go to the next level. They need to become aware of what they're doing and they need to expand their their knowledge of story. They need to read more widely. They need to be, become more aware of what techniques are being used in stories to study stories by great writers instead of just reading them and enjoying them like a normal person. Like writers can never be normal people. <laughs> we have to study this stuff. Um, and that once they start to learn about these things, 
they make the most incredible progress. That That's one of the things I love about being there for the whole six weeks of Odyssey and having these series of meetings is that, and reading their work through all of these submissions, about one per week, that you see how much they improve, that you see suddenly, you know, like they'll struggle through several stories having the same problem, and then suddenly the light bulb will go on and the story will be completely different than what they've written before, that suddenly they'll get it, things will work together. Um, It's very exciting. And so absolutely it can be taught. And I think people who who want to, you know, promote that mystique that it can't be, maybe you're just trying to reduce the competition uh, or, or uh, you know, get make people feel bad if they, uh, if they have feedback that, you know, hey, you got some problems. Well, so yeah, I'm just learning how to do this thing. Of course, I've got problems. Give me some ideas how to address them, right? It's, if you look at it that way, I think it's a lot less painful. Uh, one of the reasons people have difficulty getting feedback is that they have that in their head. You know, the minute you point out problems that they um, then don't have it and can't be a writer. It's interesting what you were saying about um, reading books as a, a writer. And I know there was a meme going around recently about how somebody reads a book and thinks it's fantastic if they're just a general reader and the writer sits there and goes, oh, I really like that particular way they've employed this particular skill set. And I certainly find that I read books very differently now that I'm a writer to what I used to read them, you know, when I was just devouring them. And particularly as a reviewer as well, I've always got one eye on on what I'm doing. Um, And I think one of the wonderful things about writing courses is even if you, if you're starting out and you have no idea where you're going to go, then, you know, they're brilliant. But even when you get older and you're more experienced in things, sometimes it's so refreshing to go, I really love this book by, I don't know, Adam Neville. I'd really like to be able to, you know, sit down and talk about how he'd, you know, how he'd done it. And when I went to, one of the courses I did was a creative writing course specifically for Mills and Boone romance. And it was fascinating, even though I've never written a Mills and Boone and I will probably never be able to do it. It was still fascinating to read how different people approached it and what their techniques were and what their thought processes were. And you can kind of pick and choose what you get from that and apply it to your own writing. And, you know, even if you don't ever use it, it's always interesting to know. Exactly. And the the thing about writing is that great writers cannot hide their techniques. They're right there on the page. You have to resist being sucked in. If it's a great story, you know, and you, you get sucked in and you're just reading it for enjoyment and you're loving it, that's great, but you're not learning from it. So that's why you have to read it over. And I, I, I tend to tell writers that reading one story 10 times is way more uh, instructive than reading 10 stories one time. Because really, the first time, if it's a good story, you are going to get sucked in. You aren't going to notice so much of the technique. But on your 10th reading, you're really going to be noticing the technique. Um, All of those sentence structures that the author used, the metaphors, the character arc, uh, how the setting was introduced, where the exposition was layered in. Um, I'm reading right now The Terror by Dan Simmons. <gasps> and uh, it's all out of chronological order, right? And so the minute I realize that as I'm reading along, I go, okay, why did he do it this way? Why did he make this choice? And why, 
how did he decide which scenes to put where, right? So it's a fascinating process of reading this book and trying to understand um, how he made those choices and what I can learn from that then about writing out of chronological, putting scenes out of chronological order. I would like to say that I have read the terror 10 times and I couldn't tell you a single writing point from it because I just get sucked into it every time. It's not a book I can read analytically. I just get drawn into it so much. It's fantastic. Wow. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm <laughs> behind you then. I have to catch up. <laughs> it, whenever it snows, I dig that book out. <laughs> uh, personally, I went on a, a kind of generic writing course in the sense that it, it didn't have any um, specific genre in mind. And I was probably the only one who was interested in writing science fiction and fantasy and you know I got a few funny looks when I said that that was what I was into um, but it, it seems to be quite common now to have sort of genre specific writing programs I mean why do you think that is I mean is there something specifically that you think writers of science fiction fantasy horror really need that you couldn't get from a generic writing course um, well, the, the MFA program that I was in was also uh, kind of generic, as you say, which really meant 98% literary writers <laughs> and yes. me, right? I was the oddball, <laughs> just like you were the oddball. Yep. And that I think that really limits it uh, in that the teachers and the fellow students generally don't know a lot about science fiction, fantasy, horror, and so don't fully understand how to read it, what it ought to do, what the yardstick is you're measuring against, how it fits within the genre, whether it's pushing the envelope or any of those things. Mm. So in my MFA program, I learned a lot about writing a good sentence and maybe theme and a few other things. Honestly, I don't think I learned all that much, but it was really that I taught myself so much of what I needed to know about writing science fiction uh, that wasn't in that program. So in thinking about, you know, do we need genre-specific programs, uh, I think part of it we need so that we have, we bring together teachers and students who all love these genres, who know a lot about them, have read a lot in them, who believe that great art can be created in these genres, uh, that respect them. You know, there are some writing programs that don't even allow you to submit genre fiction. Oh. And then others, like the one I attended, they allowed me, but they didn't know really what to do with me. Yep. <laughs> um, so that was one of the reasons I wanted to create Odyssey. I wanted to create like the equivalent of an MFA program, but with everyone involved loving genre. In addition to that, there are some things I think that writers in our field need to know that writers of literary fiction or other types of fiction don't. Um, world building is the most obvious one. If you're writing a, a literary story set in London and you live in London then and your readers are in London, then you don't have to do a lot of describing um, you don't have to do a lot of world building. Um, but if you're writing a story set on another planet or in a fantasy world, you need to 
build it. You need to have all the elements work together. You need to avoid contradictions. You need to create rich and believable cultures. Sometimes there are characters from different cultures, so there'd be culture clashes. Um, you need to figure out uh, probably the biggest challenge, how to get all of that exposition uh, and detail into the story so that um, the readers understand what's going on and where the character is and how this world works. And you need to know what to leave out, too, that maybe you needed to put in your notebook to figure out the world, but it's not relevant to the story. Mm. Um, so information about building a world, about choosing the details that need to go into the story, about how to incorporate that, those details into the story without stopping the story. Um, those are big challenges that we, that we face and that um, writers uh, need to learn in order to do uh, a strong job in those genres. You also, you mentioned, you know, that in the more generic course, uh, the, the other writers there, as well as the teachers, don't necessarily know what those genres are really about, what those genres, you know, the, the readers of those genres expect and the kind of the, the tropes working in them. With genre fiction, you know, a lot of it is heavily based in tropes. I mean, how do you, you go about sort of encouraging writers to push the envelope while still having that, you know, understanding of those uh, genre expectations? Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with reading uh, other works. Many writers come to me and they read in a very narrow area. So maybe they love urban fantasy. So they have just read urban fantasy for the past five years. And so their work is going to feel very probably very familiar, very much like those things that they've been reading for the last five years. Mm -hmm. uh, so they need to see that there's a much wider world out there, that there's a lot of other possibilities. And so I often advise writers to read more widely. I mean, definitely they, if they want to write urban fantasy, they need to know what that is. They need to know what's been done in that field. So they're not struggling to reinvent the wheel only to have readers say, yeah, I've read this already, but they know what's out there and they are putting their own individual twist on it, their own take on it, but that they also see that there's a lot of other kinds of writing out there in the world um, and that those things can be combined with urban fantasy, or perhaps the writer will then be inspired to write something outside of urban fantasy Something I find happens at Odyssey a lot is as the students read each other's work and critique it, they get really excited about writing in other genres that they hadn't previously thought about. But once they see, hey, this other person wrote this great um, science fiction story set in the near future, I want to do a near future science fiction story. And so they tend to get very excited about branching out and trying new things, which is wonderful. So I think those are kind of the two parts of it is, is to know what, what's already out there so that you're, you're doing something different and you're aware of how your work fits within the genre, but also to be aware of everything outside the genre. So basically you just have to read everything, <laughs> um, but really 
what sounds good to you as an individual writer, writers that you think are strong, writers that you would like to incorporate into your leaf mold, as Tolkien calls it. Um, we all, we each have our own leaf mold inside of us that's made up of all we've seen, experienced, read, and done. So when you are reading these works, you're feeding yourself, you're feeding your creativity, you're adding those things, those are going to be influences on you. And so you want to pick the things that you like, things that you want to be part of your leaf mold that's going to generate your stories. Obviously, you write a lot of science fiction. I mean, you have come from a scientific background and you know, worked in that environment. Do you think that that has given you a real sort of step up, a, a starting point to, to really go from? Whereas like someone else, someone like me, who I, I write a lot of science fiction, you know, I, I have a degree in philosophy. It's not quite as uh, <laughs> heavy in the science. But, um, you know, I mean, do you think that you've definitely had um, help there with, with getting into science fiction? I guess the science background helps. I mean, I can't say that I've used a lot of specific things that I learned back in school in my stories, but I guess I have confidence that I can research areas that I don't know about and learn about them and understand them and then interview experts to find out the things that are not written in the textbooks or the journal articles and incorporate that in a fairly believable way. Uh, the book I'm working on right now is about um, cloning and genetic modification. And I don't think I took any biology at the college level because it was all physics and astronomy mm -hmm. uh, and some chemistry. So, uh, so it's not something that I knew anything uh, much about, but that I had a great interest in and that I did a ton of research for. I'm not afraid to do research I'm willing to be surrounded by piles and piles of books and papers until I can hardly get in and out of my office. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think, you know, having that background helped me understand how to go about researching and, and maybe just showed that I have some ability to, uh, to do that research and understand. But I think really anyone who has an interest in it can do it and to not be afraid to contact experts to do some work on it your own so you can understand as much as you can on your own and then go for help to somebody beyond that and that they'll respect the fact that you did some work on your own first and they'll probably be very happy to show off what they know and help you out. Yes, people love talking about the things that they love. So Yes. When you came to, to teaching, did you kind of pick up on anything in your own writing that you just kind of have those light bulb moments when you were teaching others? You know, I, I imagine that when you're teaching writing and you're constantly helping others and you're, you know, you're seeing where other people make mistakes, you kind of would potentially continue to see the mistakes that you make in your own work. I mean, have you found teaching has, has helped your writing or anything in particular about setting up Odyssey that has really helped you with your own work? It's so incredible. I have learned so much from teaching and I think improved my writing a huge amount from 
researching writing techniques and issues, studying it, thinking about it, critiquing the works of others. And as you say, as you find there's a problem in a work that you're critiquing, and as you try to analyze and understand, well, what's causing this problem? You know, why don't I care about this protagonist? What is it that makes me not care about him? And then you figure it out. Oh, well, he has no goal. He doesn't want anything. He's not struggling to achieve something. And that's why I don't care. And so, gee, I guess that's really important. And then you think about your own work and you go, hmm, is my protagonist struggling to achieve something? I, I hope so. <laughs> um, so, yeah, over the years, I've had so many uh, light bulb moments. Sometimes I'm just in the midst of, you know, giving a lecture and suddenly I'll go, oh, my gosh, I, you know, I just forgot about that. Or I, I wasn't thinking about that particular principle or technique when I was writing because, the very tricky thing about writing is that a lot of it comes from the instinctive part of our brain, that it doesn't come from the rational, knowledgeable part of our brain, the part that knows all these principles, that has read the writing books, that understands, you know, that uh, the character should be struggling to achieve something, and there should be obstacles, and there should be escalation, and all of that. Um, but when we're writing, we're not quite writing from that place. We're writing from a different place. It's going, hmm, maybe the character will do this, and then maybe he'll do that. So it's great to constantly, I think, have in front of you and remind yourself of those things that you tend to forget. The idea that, you know, each scene has to show a significant change for the main character between the beginning and the end of the scene. And it has to be a change that's significant to the whole story, not just like, this is one of my favorites. I actually wrote this scene once where my antagonist was trying to do some evil thing and he couldn't find a parking place <laughs> to, to do the evil thing. And then he found the parking place. And like, that was my significant change <laughs> between the beginning and the end of the scene. And I thought, yeah, but who cares? He just found a parking place, <laughs> right? So the idea that not only do the, does there have to be a change, but it has to be something significant and something the reader is going to care about, mm -hmm. right? Always thinking about the reader. What is the reader worried about? What questions does the reader have in her head? What is, a, what is the reader caring about that's driving the reader to keep reading, so, yeah, so I've learned so many things. I do a lot of research every year. I read Every year I read about 100 books on writing and then read lots of blogs and listen to podcasts like this one to add to my toolkit and to add to what I can offer to students so that I um, am always learning new new things Something I learned a couple years ago was about the emotion arc, about trying to have, um, thinking about the progression of the emotion through a scene. So is the character feeling one emotion at the beginning of the scene and then it grows more and more intense over the scene? Or is it one emotion that's growing more intense, but then it switches due to something that happens to a different emotion and then that emotion builds? Um, so this is a, a technique used by actors um, that 
I've found really useful. And I found it a lot in my scenes and in the scenes of other writers, the emotion kind of wavers back and forth. It goes up and down. It goes here and there to and fro, and it doesn't have a lot of impact. And that if a scene lends itself to that kind of development, you can have a much stronger scene by, by creating more of a, a, a continuous movement. I wanted to ask you about two conflicting pieces of writing advice that you often hear sort of um, bounced around. I mean, on the one hand, it is important to write what you know, as Jane Austen showed us, um, and also write what you would want to read. But on the other hand, there's always this idea that you should write what sells and what's already out there and doing well. So how do you you know, go about teaching writers to get this balance between writing something they're really passionate about and um, know an awful lot about, obviously having done the research like you said earlier, but also something that is you know, going to get in front of an editor and the editor's going to say, actually, yeah, I can definitely market this. <laughs> um, so for me, the the issue about writing what's popular and what's selling is really a non-issue that I advise students to not do that um, because I've seen so many writers crash and burn chasing the market, seeing something that sells well, seeing that it's getting hot, and then writing something like that and trying to sell it. Usually one of three things happen. Either by the time the person writes it, the thing is no longer hot, right? Because that book that came out and was hot, that was bought a year or two before that point. Or if it's self-published, probably the person's been working on it for a bit of time and then it took a while to catch on. Um, anyway, so it's kind of old news at that point. Uh, or the author is able to sell it because it's still hot and it comes out or they self-publish, but the author didn't do a good job on it because the author's heart wasn't in it. The author was writing something that uh, she thought would sell, uh, and yeah, it did, but it didn't do well because it was not coming from her heart. And so now she's got this bad history uh, with the sales of this book that are not great and readers who were not too happy with it. The third option is uh, that the writer writes it and it sells and it does well. But I think that's really the, you know, maybe 10% of the people I know who have done, done that kind of thing. Often it does not work. Uh, if it's an area you have passion for and you see that it's popular, finally, you know, you've been waiting and waiting. Like when <laughs> I was uh, in my 20s, I wrote a psychic Western 811 pages okay. of telepathy and horses and murder. And it was really bad. And, you know, so I'm, I'm waiting for the day for, for the psychic question to become hot. Uh, even if it does, though, I think that one will stay in the trunk. Um, so I really see the advice, um, the relevant advice, as being write what you know and write the type of story that you love. I think combining those can lead to some great results. But by write what you know, uh, I mean really thinking about your personal experience in life. Uh, not like write 
stories that you know because you read them because other people wrote them. <laughs> uh, that would be the other part of the advice, the right, the kind of story you love. Um, but really write what you know about life, you know, in your life. What have you experienced? What have you observed about people? Do you think people are genuinely underneath it all? Are they kind? Are they selfish? Are they cruel and petty? What do you think about love? Can people truly feel love? Is love an illusion? Is love a hormonal imbalance? So trying to get some of your personal vision of life and people and reality into your story. So to take the kind of story you like to read, but to make it your own and to make it truly reflect things that you've experienced that have given you positive emotions, negative, that have tormented you, that have made you happy. Uh, so that it's something that, that takes that you can put as much of yourself in as possible. And I don't mean writing about, you know, events that really happened to you or people that you know, but what you have learned from those things, what you have experienced and what you believe. And I think when writers get that into a story, then the reader feels that. The reader feels, oh my God, I'm seeing the world through a lens that I've never looked through before. The characters, the way they act, the situations they're in, everything just feels a little bit different and fresh. And that's really exciting to see. So that's what I encourage writers to do. So as a former editor, I would, I would be so excited when I encountered one of those books uh, in my submission pile that felt fresh and unique and that seemed to be showing me a unique vision of, of the world. That's the thing that editors are dying to see more than, oh, it's a YA dystopia and YA dystopias are hot. And so that's great. That's fine. But what they're really excited about is the, the fresh voice, the fresh vision, um, that sense of a unique intellect driving the story that they're reading uh, rather than the kind of standard thing that they read all the time. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, as a reader, that's what I look for as well. So it makes sense <laughs> with teaching. I feel like if it was me, I feel like uh, giving feedback and, and trying to, you know, make sure that someone understood where they were going wrong while still encouraging them. I feel like that would be really hard. But, you know, what, what is it that, that you find hardest about teaching and, and, and encouraging writers to keep going? Oh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> sleep, sleep is definitely an issue. <laughs> During Odyssey, I get like three or four hours a night of sleep. Oof. And I'm a person who likes eight hours a night of sleep. But uh, I'm very slow at reading and giving feedback for some of the reasons that you just said. I want to be encouraging. I want to make sure that I let the, the writer know what I think is strong about the piece and how they can you know, build on those strengths. And yet I also want to talk about the weaknesses 
and knowing me, it's in pretty exhaustive detail and trying to give suggestions of how they might uh, address the weaknesses. I think a lot of times in a critique, the suggestions that uh, critiquers offer or that I offer may not be exactly right for what the what the author is trying to do in the story. I try as much as I can to figure out, you know, what is the author's goal? What is their vision of the story? How can I help them make it so? But I think a lot of times suggestions can just open up the whole possibilities of the story so that the author is in this little tunnel about I'm surrounded by these characters and situations and oh my God, how am I going to get myself out of here? And they can't quite see, hey, it could go in these different directions, that there's other possibilities. So I like to try to offer suggestions to just get them uh, maybe to think outside the box that they're in. Well, I I think probably, aside from sleep, one of the hardest things uh, about teaching a writing workshop is helping the students to cope with feedback and to use it to its best uh, ability, to get the most out of it. Uh, For many years, when I was in college and post-college and I was writing, I would not be able to take feedback. I would dismiss it. I would think these people are idiots. They cannot appreciate my sparkling brilliance. <laughs> they didn't read it carefully. They don't, if someone said, well, you never explained why, blah, 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 I would be thinking in my head, yes, I did. On page three, I explained it. You weren't paying attention. <laughs> um, and so I got nothing out of all this great feedback people gave me for many years. And then finally, I realized, you know, that one person in the group she gives pretty good feedback to everybody else. And I agree with what she says about other people's stories. So maybe I should listen to what she has to say about my story. I won't listen to anybody else, but I'll listen to her. And then once I cracked the door open, it started getting wider and wider. And I started realizing, well, this other person makes good points too. And yeah, that person makes good points. And so eventually... I came to realize, you know what? Every single word out of every single person's mouth here is very valuable to me. And I need to hoard that information and make the most I can out of it. So I think because I was so slow to learn to cope with feedback that I understand all the ways in which that experience can go wrong. And I'm kind of good at laying it out Right on the first day, we talk about this at Odyssey, the different ways people can react negatively to feedback and not get the most out of it. And so I think once they hear that, once they hear, you know, hey, one of the ways is you dismiss everybody and think you're better than them. And then the other way is you accept everything and think you're horrible and should give up, right? (laughs) And then there's a couple of more about how you you uh, try to compete with somebody else. So if you got less negative things said about your work than some other person, then you think you won and you don't <laughs> need to do anything. So over the years, I've, I've kind of gathered many of these different coping mechanisms. And, you know, hey, it's painful. So we develop coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. But I think that if I can lay it out to people and say, okay, so if you're feeling this way, hey, that's one of the standard ways to feel. 
And so you just need to recognize it and need to realize that it's not going to help you until you're able to lower your defenses. If you have that defense shield up like I had for many years, that you need to lower your defense shield, that you need to listen to what the, the good things that people are saying about your story, as well as the weaknesses that they're pointing out, because usually people only hear one side or the other, and that you need to go into the workshop session actually wanting to hear what's wrong rather than hoping that everyone says it's perfect because nobody is ever going to say it's perfect because no story is perfect. So if you recognize that it's not perfect, if you say, hey, I made it as good as I can on my own, but I need your help to know where the other problems are so I can make it even better. If you go into the session with that attitude and you try to listen to everything, good and bad, then maybe it'll hurt a little bit less and maybe you'll be able to take more of it in and to not try to solve the problems while people are describing the problems. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I've been guilty of that one. <laughs> yeah. I think accepting feedback, um, once you actually, like you say, get over that whole like, putting your defenses up, one of the things I've had to learn is also not to accept feedback and to go with my own gut feeling sometimes. Because if I give it, if I give a story out to two different people and they come back with completely the opposite, like one going, oh, I really love this section and somebody else going, I really hate it, I should cut it. You then have to kind of make a judgment going, well, which, it's not so much which one do I trust more, but which one do I think will get it more? And I think when you look for feedback, it's the person giving the feedback is really going to be... Um, key so for example anything fantasy related I'm probably going to send it to Lucy anything science fiction related I'm probably going to send it to Megan because I know their strengths and I think building up like you say learning first of all to accept feedback and then also learning how to seek out the right kind of feedback so there's no point in sending my hard sci-fi novel to my friend who writes romance because although she's going to be able to give you know fantastic feedback on structure and things like that she's just not going to get it so I think like you say it's almost it's almost like learning social interactions all over again. It's trying to figure out what kind of feedback you're looking for, who you will trust and who you, you know, who you think is really going to get your work and, and understand what you're getting. Right. Absolutely. Giving it to people you trust is critical. If you don't trust the people that you're getting feedback from, then you're very likely to dismiss it because you don't trust them or you don't know them. And so, Hey, who wants to hear negative stuff about your story, you might as well just not trust them. Um, so having that trust makes it much easier to accept what they say. Um, I think it's great to try to get feedback from writers who are at least as good as you, if not better than you, so then they can teach you things. Um, and certainly knowledgeable in the genre that you're writing about, that they've read some in that genre. Otherwise, they're going to have uh, suggestions that are just off the mark or things are going to confuse them that wouldn't confuse a genre reader, uh, which is back to that whole idea of why do we need writing programs mm -hmm. just for genre writers. So sometimes a critiquer will give you a piece of advice or share their reaction to something and it, it doesn't quite ring right to you. They'll give a suggestion that doesn't quite seem right, but it's a clue 
to what you need to do to make the story better. I'll give an example that I hope won't be too complicated. Uh, so in the novel I'm working on right now, uh, I got maybe 10 people to read the whole gigantic, way too long thing and give feedback. Some of them said uh, they didn't understand why my main character, who's a 17-year-old um, girl who works with her father, who's a geneticist, um, why this girl hated her mother so much and thought her mother was doing all this bad stuff. The mother had abandoned her shortly after her birth. And uh, so to me, the writer, I thought, well, hey, she abandoned her shortly after birth. Of course, she's going to have a thing against her mother. But to other people, they said, hey, I think she's going to have gotten over it. She's 17. She has a happy life with her father. And so then I thought, oh, yeah, that's right. And they didn't understand why she would blame her mother for these things. And so I kept just trying to explain or establish why the girl was so angry at her mother and blamed her for all these things. But then I realized, wait a minute, I could just put some evidence in front of her that her mother is guilty of these things. And then that would explain why she thinks that and why it's such an issue now that she's 17, because she just came across this evidence. So none of my critiquers, who are awesome writers and incredible critiquers, came up with this idea. Um, and mostly they just said they didn't like the character because of this, you know, they didn't like my protagonist because of this reason. So it was really like a mystery that I had to delve into to solve, to figure out what's really the problem and how can I solve it? Um, and once I realized that solution, which seemed kind of simple to me, but it took all years to come up with, then I kind of got mad at them. I'm like, why didn't anyone give me this idea <laughs> in the critiques? But of course, that's not their job. Their job is, you know, to do what they can. Uh, and then it's up to me to figure it out. So so even if you think some of the feedback that you get is off the mark, it can still help indicate to you some problem. They may not be able to identify the problem. They may not be able to offer a solution that makes sense. But maybe they can point to something that needs work. And you can figure out what that work is. I definitely know what you mean. When I... I critique uh, one of my friends. We sort of swap a lot. Um, I critique his work. He critiques mine. Um, and I kind of kind of joke about the way that I, I give feedback a lot of the time because sometimes I kind of, it's like I'm giving him a running commentary of my emotional state as I'm reading <laughs> his piece. But it's actually, you know, he, he thinks it's quite useful because I, I tell him, oh, okay, this is making me feel this. That might not be wrong. That might be right maybe you're not wanting me to feel upset yet. Maybe that's supposed to come later. And, you know, there's something happening that's a bit funny then because it's not what you intended above. So I try to give that as well because it, it seems to kind of help. It, it's almost like the barometer for the reader so that you can go in, oh, well, I didn't mean to um, make you laugh at that point. Um, you know, that kind of thing as well. <laughs> 
Um, so I think, yeah, there's also that art of, you know, going to, to writing workshops. And in my experience, it wasn't just about learning to take the feedback. It was also about learning to give good feedback as well. Yes. And, and that type of feedback you're talking about where you give your reactions as a reader and let the author know what you're feeling uh, is so valuable. In everyday life, I actually, I work for a university and not necessarily in creative writing, but certainly, you know, just generally across the board, especially when it comes to sort of um, degrees and areas where men are kind of known for, you know, finance, you know, men go into finance and it's that kind of thing. We see a lot of problems when it comes to women self-rejecting and just not even applying in the same numbers that men apply for these courses. I mean, obviously, at Breaking the Glass Slipper, we are all about promoting women, women in science fiction, fantasy and horror, and female writers in general. I mean, do you find that you have fewer women on the course? Is there a good representation? And, and what might you say to young women writers who are wanting to sort of write in genre who maybe need a little bit of encouragement? I haven't done a study of it, but I'm pretty confident that over 50% of our applicants to Odyssey are female. That's awesome. <laughs> I, can, I can absolutely say that in our online classes, which we offer in the winter, in January and February, uh, that a much higher percent is, is female than male. Yeah, and so... Uh, usually we have, I mean, the class is only 15, so there's not a big disparity uh, at the workshop, but uh, usually there are a couple more women than men. What I find is that women tend to be more focused on novels, you know, on the averages, just looking at the people who have come through the program, um, and men tend to be more focused on short stories uh, women tend to be more focused on fantasy and men more evenly broken between fantasy and science fiction. So I would say there's some hesitance of women to write science fiction, just speaking in big generalities, mm. um, and perhaps because they didn't um, study it as much in school. I'm not sure. So I do see some hesitance of that, but often I see then women at, at Odyssey delving into that when they get excited about science fiction stories that other students are writing. I can also say that I think because women are more, seem more drawn to write novels, at least the ones that I encounter, uh, that they are more of our success stories, more of our success stories of graduates who have become bestsellers and award winners and have multiple novels published by major publishers are women because the guys are still writing the short stories. And so they may be doing very well in the short stories, but it just doesn't bring the amount of attention and uh, exposure that uh, novels, novels can. What I say to a lot of writers is that if you really want to do this, the only one who can stop you is you. And if you're willing to put in the time and the energy if you're willing to push yourself to improve, uh, to do deep practice where you're going outside your comfort zone and you're trying to master new techniques rather than just 
writing as fast as you can, as much as you can, but writing to learn and improve and getting feedback and listening to it and learning from it, then you can do this. And the only one who can stop you is you. So don't let you, don't let yourself stop you. I think women also tend to be, I don't like speaking in generalities, but uh, they tend to be more disciplined, diligent, to stick with it over the years. Not that they all do, not that all the guys do, but they tend to um, stick with it more. And that's the way to improve and to get really good. It's interesting that you say you don't like speaking in generalities, but when I when I learned, um, as Amiga was saying earlier, that women do have a tendency to self-reject, although it's a huge generalization, it actually really helped me because I went, do you know what? I do. And I thought it was just me being really picky and really insecure. And then I looked around at all the guys that were sending me stuff and then sending it off and whatever. And I went, actually, no, I do genuinely do that. And sometimes going to these writing courses and meeting other people of the same gender or the same interest or whatever and comparing notes with their ex- you know with them and their experiences you suddenly go actually you know what it's not just me it is everybody and that can give you a good a good confidence to kind of you know finish that last chapter or give your manuscript another polish something like that right yes writing is such a lonely solitary business that i think anytime you can become part of a community that's going to support you with other writers who understand what you're struggling with and can help you and that you can see their success and realize, hey, I can do that too, um, that that's a great thing. And I think a lot of writers uh, who are in such communities are more productive and more successful just because they feel, hey, these other people are doing it. I always like to think when I'm sitting down to write, somebody else is suffering now, like me. <laughs> Someone else is sitting there and banging their head against the screen and struggling with these same things. And some of them are writing way better stuff than me. So I better get going and get get as much done as I can and get as much better uh, as I can. Boy, that's an ugly sentence. <laughs> Well, we all know what you mean. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I mean, we've obviously discussed loads of different um, topics and, and things here, but I wondered, Jean, if you have one piece of advice, a really important piece that you wish you had when you were just starting out. And if you can't think of one, I think we'll let you have, you know, two or three if you need them. <laughs> Thank you. It's so hard to get it down to one. I think probably the most useful piece of advice that I've received that I would want to pass down to other people is to write every day. Uh, I received that piece of advice in 1987 from Pat Labruto, who was an editor at Doubleday, and he knew I wrote, and so he told me that. And I thought, well, yeah, it would be nice, but hey, I'm way too busy, right? I'm reading submissions for the publishing house, I'm editing manuscripts, I, you know, I write when I can, I write when I have time, but I am not writing every day. Um, and it was not until, gosh, probably 
probably 2000 or so, where I realized, you know what, I'm not going to get enough done in my lifetime if I don't start writing every day. Um, that writing for a while and then, you know, getting discouraged or getting distracted or whatever, uh, and not writing for a while, and then, oh, I skipped a day, so I might as well skip another day because I'm a failure, just lost years and years of time for me. And a lot of writers will tell you that you have hundreds of thousands of words of crap inside of you, (laughs) and you have to write those out before you get to the good stuff. I I think it varies on how many words of crap we have, but certainly I had quite a load uh, that I had to get through before anything good came out. And so the sooner I started writing every day, the sooner I could um, get to the good stuff. So I think I would, I would suggest that. And I would say to all the people out there who are thinking, yeah, she's saying that, but that's impossible for me. I can't to, to rethink it, to not think about whether you have the time, but to make the time, whether it's getting up an hour early and yes, I hear all the screaming, but that's the way that the, the most popular way for successful writers to achieve success is getting up an hour early. Um, I've heard that over and over from countless writers. Um, or stay up an hour late or make somebody in your family do all the cleaning and stuff so you have an hour in the middle of the day to write or whatever it takes to do whatever it takes so you can write every day. So would you recommend having a specified word limit? Like some people say you have to write at least 500 words a day. And when I tried that, I completely failed. But if I had in my head, well, I'm going to get to this point in my story and I'm going to write this chapter, I worked much better because once I got into it, I kind of got going. It's whatever will motivate you. And whatever goal you set, it should be an easy one to achieve so that you don't fail and get discouraged. So if you want to set a word count, set a word count you can meet no matter what, like 200 words. And then you can keep going. If you get to 200 words and you still are like you're excited and you have time, keep going. Um, I set a time amount, like an hour, and then I try to exceed it if I can uh, because I'm a very slow writer and a lot of what I'm doing now is revision. So it's hard to know how many new words I wrote, Um, but I can time it. Uh, so maybe it's that. And think about any anything you can do to motivate yourself. Uh, writers have some really interesting tricks like rewarding themselves. I know writers who pay themselves for the time they spend writing um, by the hour. And they put that money into a jar. And then they're able to buy something with that money that they would never, ever spend money on that otherwise. So it's something they would never be able to get otherwise. Uh, or they pay themselves per story that they they uh, finish or per story that they submit. Um, all kinds of crazy things. Some writers just want a partner that they can send every night what they've written that day. Um, that was my cat. <laughs> <laughs> so they send what they've written every night uh, to a, their partner, and that person sends what they've written that day. Uh, not for the other person to read. There's no pressure to read it. It's just, hey, here's how much I got done. And so the other person can support and that you have kind of that little niggling pressure in your head 
so-and-so is going to ask if I don't send them anything today uh, or want to, you know, I want to send them some impressive amount of stuff that I've achieved. Um, so whatever it is that's going to inspire you uh, and, and help you uh, in, in the writing, um, but definitely a, a regular schedule and a daily goal of some sort can be a big help. Awesome. And I mean, just to, to end things, wrap things up, um, do you want to tell us a little bit about, you know, what, uh, you know, sort of right in the beginning, you sort of gave us a little overview of, of Odyssey, but, you know, what do you have on offer at Odyssey? What can people um, learn and, and do? I started Odyssey back in 1996 to help writers of fantasy, science fiction and horror uh, we started out with the six-week summer workshop, which is held uh, in a college at, in Manchester, New Hampshire, in the U.S., uh, every June and July. Uh, and the application deadline for that is April 7th. So there's still time, I think, uh, if you want to get your applications in. Yeah. Um, one really exciting thing is we have a new scholarship this year uh, sponsored by George R.R. R. Martin. Uh, that pays full tuition and housing for a writer. So if you think it's too expensive, hey, this is a way that you can have a lot of those expenses covered. And we have some other scholarships and financial aid available. Um, Odyssey became a nonprofit in 2010. And then we added, we've added a lot of other programs. So as I mentioned, we have online classes, webinars, uh, we offer critiques, consultations, coaching, and we have lots of free resources. We have a really great podcast where we offer excerpts from those guest lectures I was talking about at the workshop um, every month. And we have a blog and we have a monthly online discussion salon. So if you want to come online with us, it's the second Wednesday of every month. And just talk about your writing struggles and hear from fellow writers. Um, it's a great community where you can just share ideas and ask questions. And so we have that and a lot of other free resources. So I would encourage anyone listening to this to uh, check out our website at odysseyworkshop.org um, and see how we can help you. Because that's our goal is to help writers particularly of fantasy, science fiction, and horror, which we all love. Well, thank you so much for talking to us tonight. It's been really, really interesting. And now I just, I, I'm actually feeling really fired up and want to get back to some writing. Excellent. Yes. yes thank you, Megan <laughs> and Charlotte. This has been so great. So uh, interesting talking to you guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper. If you enjoy this show, please share and leave a review on iTunes.